Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hey, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Uh, Still in quarantine, as are many of you, so I hope everybody listening is healthy and safe out there. Yeah, absolutely. We were just talking about it beforehand. That'll probably be something for the after credits. But yeah, we talked about uh, our feelings about quarantine. But, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with everybody out there that is listening to this right now, all your family and friends. I hope everybody's doing well. Yeah, definitely. But we are going to talk about some games today. We're doing a review of Aftermath, which is the latest in... Oh gosh, can we call it the like story game or storybook series anymore? I mean, it says an adventure book game, so I'm going to go with that. But ironically, when I get into theme, I just thought about it. It's hitting a little close to home. I didn't even think about that before just yeah. now. <laughs> but yeah, so this is from Plaid Hat. I feel like Asmodee might have gotten the rights to the name adventure book series, so I don't know. Or no, Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I know there's some like weirdness with who actually owns which games in that series. In any case, we're talking about Aftermath, and what's our design discussion, Peter? So today our design discussion is integration of rules and story. So when you combine those two things together, and I mean, sometimes you'll see it in rule books where they're very thematic. Vladis Shvatel has been known for that. Sometimes you'll see it in things like the adventure books where you have intermittent rules and story kind of mingled in the same section. So how to integrate rules and story together or not do it as the case may be when we, uh, we'll figure that part out later. (laughs) But before we get into the full on episode, we want to thank a few of our Patreon supporters. Uh, we have added a bunch of rewards to Patreon. So we've been getting a lot of new names on our list and we really appreciate it, especially in this very, very trying economic time for so many people. The fact that uh, so many of you want to support the work we do here is really amazing and I'm really blown away by it. So this week, we'd like to thank Enrique Ribeiro, who is a co-op MVP, Sean Knight, a co-op fan, and Raha Walla, a new one on our Slack. Also, we've been talking to a bunch. He's actually local to Peter and I, a co-op lover. So to the three of you, to all of our patrons, thank you so much for your support. And for anybody, if you want to check us out at patreon.com slash one stop. Again, we have some really cool rewards up there. Uh, actually, last night... I had my first uh, playthrough with some of our patrons. One of the levels uh, gets you a playthrough with one of the staff of One Stop Co-op Shop every month. We played uh, Too Many Bones on Tabletop Simulator. It was an excellent time. So yeah, I love our Slack community. I love our Patreon community. All the people who comment on YouTube. It's just an amazing uh, group of awesome people to be a part of. Yeah, I'll second that. Really, you know, the Slack has gotten me through many days. It's funny, I'm not as active at the Slack normally, but obviously with everybody being home, getting some free time because, you know, we don't have ice skating with the kids every night or swimming with the kids or whatever else we normally have in the evenings. Now I have time to do some other stuff. So I've been much more active on the Slack lately and realized what a great community it really is. All right. So today we're going to be talking about Aftermath from Plaid Hat Games. And Peter, you want to go through the theme of this one? It's actually pretty, I don't even want to say pretty unique. It's absolutely unique. I've never heard of anything like this. Yeah, so you were playing rodents in the game. I would say mice, but you're not all mice. There's definitely a guinea pig in there. 
And what happened is civilization has disappeared as we know it. So all the humans on the earth basically disappeared one day. Thanos snapped his fingers. Instead of half <laughs> the population leaving, the whole population left. Oh my gosh, that is that is so apt. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that when I was first playing it. That's oh, great. I mean, that's the first thing I thought when I started reading it. I was like, oh my gosh, he disappeared into dust, huh? Yeah, I wonder what happened there. Stupid <laughs> Thanos. So these rodents, because there's no civilization anymore, they start becoming greater and greater thinkers. It's almost like people being on this planet inhibited their brain power. And so they start talking and creating societies more similar to the societies that we have. And so this is the story of four adventurers who are going out trying to support their colony, basically bringing back food, things like that. There's also other adventurers that are missing, and that's part of the story as well. But I don't want to get too deep into that part of it. But uh, yeah, so you're four adventurers trying to supply your colony. Yeah, and I'll go over the basics of the game mechanics. I did cover this game uh, way back uh, late last year. Uh, before it was actually in retail release. This is a review copy I got way earlier than I usually do. But this is a successor to Stuffed Fables and uh, Comanauts. It's in the same series. And in a way, it uses a lot of the same mechanics, except that this one is card-driven and those are dice-driven. But the basic idea is you pick from a evolving deck of mission cards, both a main mission and a side mission, And these will generally tell you on this little uh, grid map where you're trying to get to do something for your colony. But uh, in terms of the actual, like, main gameplay, it's in the adventure book game series. So you have this uh, book that opens up, and you have uh, the generally, like, the rules text on one side and the actual board you're moving around on right in the book on the other side. Players will draw cards from a deck... And some of those cards will be uh, dark cards that will potentially, like, spawn enemies to attack you or activate enemies that are on the board. But your main stuff is you use the cards in your hand that are not those negative cards. And they come in different colors. They have values from one to three, usually. And you can discard any colored hand to move around the map. So anything can become movement. Although some cards, based on their color, might let you move better over certain terrain. And then the rest of the cards are used to do actions. So you can forage for goods in certain spaces with a yellow card. You can fight melee with a red card, do ranged combat with a green card. And it has this cool system. In Stuff Fables, you would have to use the dice and roll them. But here you have a lot of control over how you play cards because you can like follow up the cards you play. So whatever card you start with, let's say it's a three yellow, you can play any card that matches the color or the number. So any other threes you have in your hand or any other yellow cards you have in your hand. You add up your total, any bonuses you get from your character, and then you roll one or two dice, uh, depending on what kind of test it is, that might lower or raise your chances of success. But that's uh, basically it for resolving all the actions in the game. Attacking somebody, defending, uh, all those things besides movement, which is automatic. So you play through these boards, and if you've played stuff Fables or Comanauts, you'll know a lot of how this works. When you get to certain spaces, you read little narratives on the side. And you're just trying to accomplish your mission. It might uh, involve going to all these like unique locations. It might involve uh, foraging or scavenging for certain stuff. You might fight uh, a giant cat <laughs> with these uh, really great miniatures. But those are kind of like the core basics of the game. I don't want to get any more into it, so this doesn't take too long. But it's it's card play, kind of dungeon crawler-ish, uh, trying to get stuff for your colony in discrete missions. In a bit of a, not, not legacy, like in that you write stuff down. But, like, uh, you unlock cards as you go along that can let you do new missions for your colony. 
Yeah, thanks for the overview, Mike. It's, you know, it, it seems so simple to play, but at the same time, there is a lot to it because there's different ways of traveling, there's different other stuff, but yet at the core of the game, it's very simple. On your turn, you're drawing up a hand of cards and you play those cards to do various effects. Each card could be an action and that's basically it. Well, with that out of the way, let's get into the top five list. So if this is your first time joining us, thank you. And what we do here is we talk about the top five things we think you need to know about the game, starting with number five, which is our least important thing, and going all the way up to number one, which is our most important thing. And I'll go ahead and start us off today with the number five, which for me is the enemy track. And the enemy track is a little bit of a pro and a con for me. So the way it works is you have this little board and there are five spots on this board where you can place enemies as they pop up on the board. And when you're drawing your hand of cards at the beginning of your turn, you drop to five cards. Any of those cards that are black cards will typically go in that enemy row and they're numbered one, two, and three. And the, the enemies have abilities that are triggered on one, two, and three. So if somebody has a one card placed next to them, it'll trigger their one ability and they'll do whatever it says next to that one ability. You know, next time that same enemy may have a three next to them. But the way the whole enemy track works is if there's no enemies on the board, when four cards are placed there, you trigger something. And it's usually something bad will happen, like enemies come find you or whatever else. Or if there are enemies there, whenever there's at least as many black cards on that track as there are enemies on that track, then those enemies are going to trigger. And like I said, the way they trigger is they're going to trigger based on the number next to them. So that part is all really cool, at least in theory. And, and I like it most of the time in practice. There are a couple things I'm not in love with with it. Number one is the less enemies you have on that track, the more frequently they activate. So sometimes if you have four enemies on the track and you have two or three cards, they're not going to activate at all. Or sometimes you'll have three enemies and two cards there. And if you kill one of the enemies, then they end up activating that round because you've taken them to that point. So it's almost smarter not to kill the enemy in that round, which seems kind of weird. So there's some weirdness to the system like that. But the thing I like about it even less is when you draw your hand of five cards and those bad cards go to the enemy track, it's almost like a double whammy. Because not only are you activating enemies, but you're also drawing less cards in your hand. So if you get two or three black cards in your hand at the beginning of your turn, you're now putting those on the track. Now you only have two things you can do on your turn. And so not only does bad stuff happen at the end of the turn, but you also have less opportunity to do stuff about it. Because it's not like you draw your hand back up after you place those cards on the track. So I think it's a really innovative system. I think it's really neat. I think it has potential, but I do see some flaws with it personally. Yeah, and that didn't make my list, but I've never been in love with that activation system because they had basically the same thing in Stuff Fables and I think in Comanauts as well. It always felt a little wonky that when you like were down to one enemy, they would just activate almost every turn sometimes. Now, I, I, I get it. I'm assuming that if they tested it with like four cards always being needed to activate the enemies, then you could just leave one enemy and they would be basically a non-issue. And I will say it did bother me less here than in Stuff Fables, for example, because Stuff Fables has less easy movement and like more often you're kind of stuck on one side and you can't even reach enemies that are shooting you with range attacks and stuff sure so in this one i usually felt like if there was one enemy left i had it well within my power to take care of that one enemy but i'm, I'm with you it didn't make my list but definitely an annoyance yeah and again the other the other part bothered me more that part bothers me a little bit but i kind of even can thematically justify hey you just saw your buddies die now he's like frenzying and going crazy and attacking more often I can kind of see that, at least thematically, a little bit. But the drawing a bad card and then having less stuff to do on your turn 
and bad things are going to happen, like I said, it's a double whammy. So the the swinginess of the luck is more, right? So if I draw sure. only white cards, I'm going to have a really good turn. But if I draw mostly, or, you know, I say white cards because the backing of the card is white. But if I draw, you know, these bad cards, then I'm just not going to have as much to do on my turn. That bothered me more than the track itself. Yeah, and my number five is also a mixed one. And this is one that's very true of the series for me in general. I think that they have a lot of cool tools that could make your characters feel very different, but it doesn't work out that way, necessarily. To explain what I mean, each character has bonuses to certain skills, and that's certainly very impactful. Like, some characters are better at talking to people or searching, some characters are better at melee, at range, that matters a lot. And then they also have a unique set of skill cards, like, totally unique, that only certain characters can get. But here's where kind of the negatives come in. The skills are very expensive to use, and this was also the case in Stuff Fables sometimes, like you get these uh, certain tokens and you usually would get very few of them. So, you know, having cool skills doesn't matter that much if my character only gets the uh, white-suited cards to use them, like, twice per entire, like, mission we're playing. <laughs> like, I don't really get to show my coolness off. And if I compare it to something like Imperial Assault, where most of your skills are usable every turn, or at least with a little bit of stamina that you can get back very easily, it definitely stands out as kind of a negative even though the characters seem very different. The other thing is they have a lot of unique items, but they've done their numbers such that no item generally goes above a plus two bonus. And really a lot of them are just plus ones because if you went too much above that, they'd be way too good. But it makes it feel like every item is almost the same. Like the differences in items are very minor. I felt the exact same way about stuff fables so, uh, you know, this is a five. It doesn't break anything for me. But if I'm looking for like a game where like each playing each character feels very unique, I don't get that at all in this series in general and in this game in particular. Yeah, I agree with that. None of that stuff was on my list. I actually thought you were going to also go to the swinginess of the skill cards you get because some of them are way better than others. Like one of them is like convert a guy to your side <laughs> for, you know, for a pretty cheap cost for two white. And another one is like, Move a space for a two-way car. I'm yeah, like, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I've been complaining about that since Mice and Mystics. I don't want to beat the same drum. But yes, I I, I don't think uh, this this series, and I, I like Jerry Hawthorne a lot. I think he does great designs. I don't think he does, I, I don't think it's important to him to have skills be balanced. And I wish it was a little bit more important. Sure. All right. But my number four is that it is an adventure book game. And obviously it's right there in the title, an adventure book game. But if you've played the other ones, as Mike said earlier, you know, you have an idea of how this works. If you haven't, I think the system is really neat. I really love the fact that you have a map on one half of the book and kind of the rules for that page on the other half of the book. Now, Mike, you've played these games more than me, so tell me if this is new or not. The environment cards themselves, are those new to this series? No, no, that's that's been there since Stuff Fables. All right, well, I think it's worth mentioning again anyway, because it's really neat. So sometimes you'll go back to the same locations, or they even use the same location for several places on the board. It's like if you're in space A4, read this entry. If you're on space C2, read this entry. And so they might even use the same pages in the book for several locations, but you know, you're reading different stuff. So even though the map looks the same, the flavor is completely different. But even if you're in the same map, in the same location, 
you have these environment cards that come up and they'll change what happens when you're in there. So you might Oh, be wait, to- wait, Peter, I'm sorry. <laughs> you're talking about the encounter cards. I thought you meant like the environment cards, like hiding spots and like the rules for the terrain that's on the card. Yes, the, the encounter card system is new and unique to Aftermath and I think it's great too, but sorry, carry on. Yes, so sorry, not the environment cards, you're right. The environment cards are what tells you what's there, sorry. I, I had those two mixed up. So the encounter cards themselves are really neat because you can go back to the same location, even if it's the exact same spot, and you'll encounter something different. And some of them are even special to that page. So you might not see any of these ever. So it might say, go to encounter A for this page or encounter B or encounter C for this page. So it's really neat how they can create diversity of gameplay, even when you're going back to the same locations. Yeah, and that goes right into my number four, which is a big pro, and that's the uh, world building in the game. So Peter already talked about the encounter cards. They're amazing. And they even add to kind of a consistent storyline, which we'll go into kind of the campaign structure, which I think we'll probably both get to later. But like you might get an encounter that adds a new encounter card and like this gang that you met will come back and mess with you again or that kind of thing. So that's already really cool. But on top of that, I found the narrative very well written and pretty engaging. Like, again, it's a unique theme. So they would have like these little stories. The only part I didn't love is... uh, When you go to some pages, you'll get like this kind of uh, flashback vignette of humans doing activities right before they got snapped out of existence. Uh, So like those I could take or leave. But the actual narrative of like your characters and what they're doing was great. I I loved, again, the like persistence of the world and how it adapted to the stuff you did. The miniatures, I think, are beautiful. They have this wash effect. They're chunky. They're awesome. The art is really well done. So I think in terms of, like, getting you into an evocative, immersive theme, this game does a fabulous job. Yep, I totally agree with that. My number three, though, is the innovative card system, is what I called it. So... It is an adventure book game like the others, but as you said earlier, the one thing they replace is they replace the dice with cards. And I'm starting to realize, and it's ironic because all of our games have dice in them, but you can do a lot of cool things with cards. And I really like systems. You know, when they turn dice systems into card systems, I tend to like the card systems better. Partially because you get a little bit more swinginess toward the middle, so you're not getting wide swings typically one way or another. You know when you go through this deck, you're pretty much going to get this many good events, this many bad events. But not only that, you can put so much more on a card that you than you can on a dice and add a lot of flavor and theme that way. So even though the cards themselves that you're drawing are not that way, they're basically just numbers. I like how you can use them to activate enemies. I like how you can use them to do a lot of things in this system. And it leads to a lot more consistency. So if I have a lot of green cards, that means I can do a lot of ranged attacks. They even let you pass cards to other players as long as they have two or less cards in their hand. So not everybody can pass their cards to one player and that player is like a 20 card hand. But If somebody's really good with green cards, you could pass them your green cards and help them have a better turn on their turn. So I like what they did with the card system. It's really unique. And especially what you were talking about earlier, if I decide to, I'm trying to green test, a range test, and I put the green two down. Well, now I can put any other two of any other color down to boost that by two as well. Or I could play any other green card because that's the first card as part of the test. So I really like how they did that card system. I think it was really neat and innovative and I hope we see it again in the future. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, but I'll touch on something else first. Uh, My number three is, I'm going to talk about this later kind of in a different way, but it's focused on the variety in the gameplay. 
Miss is a bit of good and a bit of bad for me. So the plus side, Peter mentioned somewhat already. The encounter system is great for varying up even normal pages that you've seen. And something I love is uh, some of the cards in the encounter deck just say read E1 or read E2, and every single page has a unique E1 and E2. So even like using the same encounter cards, you can still see fully surprising things when you're playing the same page a third or a fourth or a fifth time. And also the actual missions, so these main missions you take that kind of push the story along, although you have a lot of choice in which ones you do, they'll usually take you to a unique set of two or three or four more pages that you'll never see anywhere else with like very unique encounters and cool things and like sneaking or crazy fights or boss battles. And I think those are great too. Where the negative side comes in, you will have... Even with the encounter card, you'll have the repetition of going through the same locations a lot with, like, no narrative element. Now, you can just rush through them. You can literally run through in, like, a single card play or two card plays and get to the exit and be done in, like, five seconds. But, you know, it still might be a bummer that you're seeing a lot of the same stuff repeated. I compare it to, like, Kingdom Death Monster fighting a lion 15 times in a row. And then the other thing is, uh, with at least the base game, they said there might be expansions... The enemies get pretty repetitive and don't really feel that markedly different for the most part. So I did feel like the fights got fairly repetitive as well as some of the page encounters. So there's a lot of good here and some things that aren't quite as enthralling. The one thing I'll say, and I didn't put this in any of my points, is that later on in the game, especially after you build the workshop, which I built pretty early in the game, you could do what's called fast traveling. Yeah. And and so there are ways to skip a lot of those pages you've done early on. Now, some missions won't let you do that. And sometimes you don't want to do that because it costs food, I believe, to do that. Or gears. One of the two. Yeah, it depends on what you're using, but we'll have to get (laughs) too spoilery with that stuff. Yeah, but bottom line is, you know, sometimes you need to gather food for the colony or whatever else, and so you don't want to fast travel. But I love how they put that in there. I mean, that's very video gamey. Oh, you know, you don't have to travel to this place every time. Once you've traveled there once, you've got like a teleporting gate. You can kind of just go straight there. Now, they don't explain it that way. They obviously have you traveling in vehicles and stuff, but it's it's kind of neat how that works out. So, yes, I agree that there is some repetition, but I like how you can skip a lot of it also. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a good point. All right. So my number two is the story and theme. And you kind of touched on this on your number four, I think it was. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the narrative in this game is great. I thought Mice and Mystics was good and my family had an enjoyable time playing that. But the story here is just so much more enthralling for me. I think they've grown as storytellers since then. I do agree with you. I wish when they did those flashback moments, at least they'd let you know it was a flashback. Like all of a sudden it's like, wait, what's going on here? You know, it's kind of like movies. You know, sometimes they put that wash effect over it to let you know that it's a flashback. And sometimes they don't and you get confused because it's just choppy jumping from spot to spot. So, yeah, sometimes I'm like, wait, who are these characters? What am I reading about now? And so I wish they had sectioned that out a little bit. I mean, that's a small quibble. For me, overall, this is a huge pro. The theme is great. The artwork is great. They really immerse you in the gameplay. I really love the idea of growing your colony. You get to build stuff for your colony. But some of these games take that step and make it like 10 or 20 minutes. And I don't feel like it's that way here. So I think it keeps you involved in the story and it really makes you care about what's going on there as well. So for me, the story is a huge success. The number one reason to get this game, the number one reason, you know, that you're going to enjoy this game. It's just amazing. So 
That's my number two. Great story, great theme. Yeah, and my number two goes right back to Peter's number three, the card system. I think this is lovely. I won't repeat too much what Peter said. I think it just gives you a nice puzzle on your turn. You have a lot of flexibility in how you use your cards. I love that movement can be anything. I love that you can add on uh, cards from other suits. So you got to kind of figure out how you want to use the cards in your hand. And another nice thing is you can keep as many cards as you want. And you can also give cards fairly freely between each other. So you really have a lot of control over the tempo of the turn and how quickly you might be drawing, even though Peter did point out that it can feel like a, you know, (laughs) an unfair uh, thing when you draw a lot of those black cards and like have to do negative things on your turn. You have a lot of control over how quickly you'll go through the deck and get to those cards with the fact that, you know, if you don't have the right colors for your turn, you can just use a couple of cards and keep all the rest for your uh, for your next turn and let somebody else go. So I think that works really well. The one other thing I want to say is just comparing it to stuff Fables and Comanauts, which were dice-based, it's so much more flexible here. And it is, I don't know if I could even go back and play those games again. I might just like want to take the Aftermath deck and put it right in there. Because in those ones, you would have a wild color. But besides that, like if I didn't draw a green card, I could not fight. And that's still like, you know, kind of the case here. But first of all, they let everybody do range combat and everybody do uh, melee combat, especially if you have the right items, you can do it pretty well. So that's not as limited. But also, if I get, like, a single green card to start the ranged attack, then I can use anything else that matches it in number and really do, like, a huge attack, even though I didn't get a bunch of green cards. So it just gives more agency in the player's hands, and I'm always a fan of that. And kind of like Peter, even though, (laughs) like you said, we are literally designing some dice-driven games right now, I love card-driven games. I love seeing that in uh, Dungeon Crawlers. Uh, Colin's covered a lot of card-driven Dungeon Crawlers recently. Uh, he just had on the YouTube channel recently his top 10 dungeon crawlers, and a bunch of them were card-driven. I just I just love this. Like, you know, Gloomhaven, what have you. It's fun to have cool cards that are unique to your character. Or, you know, not unique in this case, but at least have the fun puzzle of how you're going to play out your turn. Yeah. No, you said it better than I did, so listen to him. Stop listening to me. <laughs> I, I think I know what your number one is, Peter, but go ahead and hit us with it. Uh, do you want to guess what my number one is? Oh, I mean, I, I know it's the rule book just from all the rules questions you had for me, right? Oh, my God. It, it's not just the rule book. It's everything to do with the rules. Like, the rule book itself is just uh, the tip of the iceberg with what I think is wrong with the rules for the game. And I don't mean how the game plays. Don't get me wrong here. It's it's how the rules are given to you, I think, is atrocious and awful. Not only is the rule book itself awful, but there are things like... Sometimes an enemy attacks you and it says, it sets you on fire. I don't know what that means. Now, I realize that there are condition cards and I had to look through them and find the condition card that tells me what fire is and go from there. But it's like, I wish it just said, draw the condition card, fire, instead of trying to like explain it in some thematic way or whatever. Like, I I don't know. And I don't know anywhere where it tells you to look through those condition cards. I just started looking through decks till I could find that card. I'm like, oh, I guess it's a condition that I now have. I mean, it says the enemy does this to you. And it's like, wait, what? Is that flavor text or is that a rule card? Like, I just wish they broke it out. And I mean, I, I guess you can see now why we're we're going to have this as our design discussion. It just drives me crazy when I can't distinguish between fluff and rules And it would be so easy to just say, draw the condition card fire and attach it to your character. Like, it's not that hard. It wouldn't take that many extra words instead of like set your character on fire. What does that mean? So it like, I don't know. The first couple games of this were just so frustrating. And 
I'm not going to get into final thoughts here, but this is the biggest thing to me that stands out about this game. Now, you do have to understand that I am a very specific person as well. I don't know why, but the rules matter to me. Maybe it's the designer in me or something like that, and I don't want to break the rules. I know there are some people that are much looser about their rules interpretations as well. And so some people, this isn't going to bother as much as it bothers me. It's And it even says in the rule book, like, if you can't figure it out, just make it up and then look it up later. And it, that's just not in my personality, and I can't do that, and I need to know how to play correctly, and it drives me crazy. And don't get me wrong, I get rules wrong all the time. But then I can look back and figure out what's right. And here, I feel like I can't ever look back and figure out what's right because the rules aren't in there. Like, some things just feel left out. And so that's the biggest frustration and the biggest thing that sticks out to my mind when I think of this game. Unfortunately, you know, it was between this and theme for my number one. And I'm like, which one stands out more to me when I think about playing this game? And the fact that I haven't gotten it back to the table recently... It's not because the theme's not good. It's because I can't stand trying to figure out the rules. And I know I'm going to have rules questions next time I play, too. And it's not like I haven't played this game several times already. So, to me, that's what stands out the most. If you're, like, bad rules drive you crazy, that'll stand out for you as well. Yeah, and it's... This is not my number one. And I had a weird experience with doing the rules for this game because I found them just as vague as you, Peter. And we're not exaggerating here. I mean, go read the rulebook online. You might feel like you know how to play the game, but they literally left out major elements in there. And it's just, and it's oddly organized. It's a really weird thing. But yeah, when I was playing, and again, this was like before the game was officially released, I had the pleasure of actually chatting with the designer, Jerry Hawthorne, and he was amazingly generous and he was like answering all my questions. So I know I played the game correctly. You can go watch my playthrough. Actually, I would strongly recommend watch my playthrough before you play. Because you'll get a lot of the basic things that, I mean, even in our Slack, people have been asking as they played the game over the last month, and they're like, how do I do this? And I'm like, uh, it's that. And they're like, where's that in the rules? I'm like, I don't think it is. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, it's such a, I don't understand. It is such a weird rule book. It is so short. Like, it's, it's like somebody at Plaid Hat or, or somebody like at their printer was like, hey, we're running out of paper. Uh, your rule book can only be eight pages long. <laughs> it's, it's 12 you know? pages, to be fair. But one of them is literally a picture on the cover, and the back page is a quick reference, which is probably as thorough as the rest of the rule book is. Yeah, I mean, like, they just left things out. No, Basically, no examples of play. And... Even things that I think are spelled out in the rules, from looking at the rules forums, from talking to people on our Slack, they're not clear enough. Like the very basic thing of play a card of the correct color to start the action, and then you can play more cards of the same color or the same number. That's not as clear as it should be. That is literally the entire core gameplay mechanic. Well, I don't know, man. They have these white cards too, right? So white cards are kind of wild cards, but they're not really, because they're considered their own suit. Well, it doesn't really tell you that. I guess it kind exactly. of does. But, like, you can start a ranged action with a white card, which is a wild card. But then any extra cards you play can't be of that other suit. It has to be of the white suit. And, like, when you're moving, if you're moving over a green space with a green card, then it doesn't cost extra movement. It's only one. But if if it's any other card, it costs three. Well, does a white card count as a green card? No, it doesn't. It, it, it does not. But, yeah, how right. the heck are you going to figure that out? <laughs> yeah, you would think it would because it's a wild card, right? So, I mean... Yeah, and, 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 and like ju- just to give them benefit of the doubt, because back in my video review, I was like, well, I'm sure it'll be better once the game is officially released. They did one FAQ, I found the file uh, back in December, 
It's like two pages long. It does answer a few things that are major issues, but there's still like a thousand questions that aren't answered. So yeah, it's it's frustrating. Like this is a game that needs a rule book rewrite or just needs like a illustrated example of play that shows all the main things. It's 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 a it's an unfortunate thing for a game that I think is so well designed that it is so hard to get into playing it. All right, Mike. So what's your number one? Because that wasn't even on your list. So no, your- <laughs> yeah, and, and again, like it, it, it'll be like Peter said, it'll be the number one thing for you based on how frustrated you get trying to figure out how to play and playing the game exactly right. And I, I don't know if this is a Hawthorne thing. I don't know if this is a Plaid Hat thing. But I, f- I felt that way about the Mice and Mystics rule book. I felt that way a bit about the Stuff Fables rule book. Like somebody involved in these games just doesn't like detailed rule books and i don't know why at, at least for my you know my preferences as a gamer it's not what i'm looking for and based on reactions i think it's what a lot of people are not looking for but yeah my, my number one it is a mix uh, i was a pro back when i did my video review but reflecting on it more i think it's definitely a mix and that is some things that peter has talked about and i have uh, the mission structure and the colony so like i said in the rules explanation you'll pick one of these main mission cards If you complete it, you'll get generally some, like, new mission cards unlocked, or you'll get uh, some new cool thing added to your colony. Each of the main characters, these four rodents you're controlling, has uh, victory conditions to win. And to do them, you have to, like, complete certain main missions. You don't know which ones. You have to discover that. And that's all pretty cool. Like, you really feel like you're making choices. You, the sky's the limit. I can do whichever mission I want each game. And that's great. And then the colony sounds fun. Like Peter said, it's not like this intense kingdom death thing where you're playing that for 30 minutes all by itself with its own board and like multiple decks of cards. You know, you just pick out what you want to build things with and you get like these cool upgrades and you unlock fast travel and all this stuff. So that's all great. Now here's where the negative side comes in. And it's a negative that has evolved over the time since I played. It's very limited. And Peter, I don't think you finished the whole campaign, right? So you didn't see quite how limited it was, right? No, I'm going to go into that in my final thoughts. But yeah, no, I have not finished the campaign. So um, a thing is, it feels very open-ended, but to complete all four characters' main quests, you basically have to do every main mission in the game. And as you go further along and upgrade your colony more, you realize there are so few colony upgrades, like so few. And you're going to upgrade all of them, basically. In fact, you pretty much have to upgrade all of them to get your characters to where you win the game. So it's it's very linear. Now, it's, <laughs> it's a weird, like, mix of open-ended into linearity because you can pick which things you do first. But in the end, you have to do them all. It's really like you're doing a checklist in the order you want, but you still have to do the entire checklist. So I still love how things unlock. I love how the mission expands. I do like the storyline that is told through all of it. But by the time you're done playing, I don't know if you'd ever want to play the game again until they get expansions. And, uh, you know, the game indicates that there are going to be expansions, like new characters who have different ways to win, new things you can build in your colony, new enemy types, because I found them not that varied, maybe new locations to explore. But nothing's happened yet. And I don't think there's any announcement yet that things will happen. I'm really hopeful they do. But I mean... I don't know, like, for Stuff Fables, they only did, like, little print-and-play expansions. I guess Mice and Mystics got a few box expansions. So, yeah, I'm not sure where Plaid Hat is on it, but I think if they don't do expansions, this is a game that you're going to get 15 to 20 good-to-great sessions if you can get over the rules, and then you're going to sell it or trade it. I don't know why you'd want to play it again, because you've seen everything. And it really isn't fair, because Kingdom Death Monster is a $400 game, 
But comparing it to Kingdom Death, where you have these different paths to go down, and you have this huge deck of advancements you can unlock for your uh, your civilization, and that's just the base game without adding in all these expansions. And, you know, this game feels like Kingdom Death light, but a little bit too light. Like, I just wish there was a little bit more variety. I wish there were a little bit more upgrades in the colony. I wish I didn't feel like by the time I finished, like, my, uh, you know, 15-play campaign that I'd literally seen everything the game had to offer. So it's still cool. I think the way it does it, a light campaign system that's so accessible is great, but it does limit the game's replay and value unless these expansions actually materialize. Yeah, I, I mean, I see what you're talking about. I don't, I did not play through the campaign, so I can't have, you know, final say on what I think in, uh, in the long run. But for the gameplay that I've had with it, I really have liked the lighter upgrading and things like that. I, you know me, though. I tend to like lighter games than you do. And so for me, it finds the right balance. And I did like all of that stuff. And I don't care if it's linear and I'm going to unlock everything eventually. I almost like that because I don't want to have to play through again just to see one or two missions I didn't get to play last time. So to me, that that part doesn't bother me at all, in fact. But, you know, as I said, I think the story is really great. But I'll get into my final thoughts. This is a game I was looking forward to. Even during my first game, I'm playing with my kids. And that was probably a mistake, first of all. is like I thought I'd be able to get through it. I'm like, oh, I read the rules. I know how to play. Yeah, no, I didn't know how to play at all. And so they had a miserable time, unfortunately. And it wasn't that the story, they weren't engrossed in that. It's just it took so long to get through the game because we kept having to pause and look stuff up and figure stuff out. So I would say, just as a tip, if you do want to get this game, I would definitely try to solo through a mission first because you're going to see a lot of questions in your first game, and that would help you introduce it to others. So first of all, I think that's the best way to do it. So I've experienced this game mostly solo after that because I didn't really have anybody to play with because my kids would not go back and play with me again after that experience. And to be honest, it didn't go much faster after that because it was new questions I'd run into because every mission you have has a lot of new stuff going on. And I'm not the best at running things it's a little bit harder for me to do. And so I'd miss stuff in the rules like, oh yeah, if you do this, or, you know, it, it, not in the, the rule book rules, but in the mission specific rules, which I think is really cool. Again, I love that every page has its own stuff, but then I wouldn't always know what I was supposed to be doing or I thought I could do something. And even people on the Slack pointed out to me like, oh no, you can't do that until the room's clear. I'm like, oh, well, must've missed that. So sometimes I feel like when the rules are too much, you lose the story. And this is a very thematic game and a very supposed to be thematic game. And I think that's why they tried to keep the rule book as small as possible. But it still has intricate, detailed rules. And so it's weird. It's a weird combination for me. And I'm actually sounding more negative than I want to because I actually really, really enjoyed my plays when I was playing the game. Like the things that I was doing, I loved doing. I loved the card play in the game. I loved the story of the game. I loved a lot about it. But the reason the rules are my number one is when I think about playing this game again, that's what comes to the top of my mind. And I'll be honest, I did not play this game nearly as much as I play most of our review games. And it's because I've had a week, literally quarantined at home. Now I am working during the day, but I have free, had free time and I have not wanted to go back to it because every time I think about setting it up, I'm like, oh gosh. I really don't, I, I don't want to play it. And I don't usually say that. And again, especially with a game I've had such positive experiences with, 
But just that one negative thing just looms over it for me so much. But I think if you were the kind of person that that doesn't bother, that if you're not a rules stickler and you don't mind just like playing it fast and loose, if you liked Mice and Mystics, because that's the reason I gave away Mice and Mystics too. If you liked Mice and Mystics and didn't think there was rules ambiguities there, I don't think they'll bother you here either then. And so for me, I think this is a much better game than Mice and Mystics. The gameplay-wise, I liked it. The story-wise, I liked it much better. But the rules questions are still there, and that's why I got rid of Mice and Mystics and never finished that one either. Yeah, so I will be a bit more positive than Peter, but with some big caveats. So I think this game is pretty brilliant, and I really, really loved it when I was playing through the campaign. Now, once I, you know, finished playing it, then I have not played it since. So I actually had to go watch my own videos to be like, what was this game about? Uh, (laughs) In preparation for this review, since Peter has my copy and, you know, with quarantine, I can't get it back right now. But I think the game is really, like, has an amazing theme, has really fun play. I love the card mechanics. I love the miniatures. It's it's just a great thing. Here are the big things you got to look out for. I won't even say, like, if you don't mind ambiguous rules. I'll say if you aren't willing to do the time to look up the rules, to look up rules questions, and to watch some videos. Like, I would strongly recommend, again, watching my playthrough and some other play... Well, no other playthroughs online, because I don't know if they got it right. But definitely watch my playthrough. (laughs) I think I have everything correct or almost 100% correct. If you're willing to do that homework, then it won't be as bad. It still won't be great, because like Peter said, you'll get to a page and they'll say something, you'll be like, what? But you should at least have the basics down, which even the basics are throwing people for a loop. Um, This is not a myth situation, this is not where, like, the rule book. I mean, well, it almost is a myth situation in that the game is very hard to play as written, but it's a lot easier to get into than myth. You don't need, like, a completely rewritten rule book if you just can use some resources. So if that idea doesn't bother you, and if the other thing is if you think you'll be okay playing the game 15 times and then letting it sit for a while until maybe expansions show up or selling or trading it, then I think this is an awesome game. If you can get over those two big bumps. But if you want something you can play Evergreen like 50 times with just the base game, if you uh, want a game that will just nicely walk you through the rules and you'll be playing in like 10 minutes, no problem, this is not it. So uh, unlike, you know, uh, (laughs) if you watch Shelf Life, you've seen some of my top games from last year, Marvel Champions, Tainted Grail. They have fallen, uh, Tainted Grail, precipitously for me uh, from their lofty positions. I think Aftermath is still about where I had it. I think it was like in my, I don't know, top, like, it might have been like number six or number seven in my games of last year. I still think it's a pretty brilliant game, but it's going to punish some players. So just exercise some caution if you're going to go buy it. Yeah, and I don't know if it's going to be for everybody, right? Because it's hard, because you are usually the one that's not bothered by this kind of stuff. But you had the designer as a resource, so you didn't really get that experience of trying to learn it through the rulebook and online resources. And I am usually the one that has a harder time with this kind of stuff. And, of course, I didn't have any resources, and it had been so long since you played it, you couldn't remember a lot of the correct answers to my questions as well. And they weren't all covered online. And so that was kind of my biggest frustration. But, no, I I totally agree. I want to love this game. And it's so funny. I totally agree with Mike. Go watch his playthrough of it. It'll give you a much better sense of whether that kind of stuff's going to bother you or not. But at the same time, you're going to watch the playthrough and go, this game is so simple. How did these idiots get anything wrong? And you're right. It is so simple. If everything was covered in the rules, it would be a very easy game to play. (laughs) 
It's just, they're not, and I don't know why. So, anyway. But yeah, it's a very simple, straightforward game. It's the kind of game I should love. But I kept getting taken out of the thematic integration because of the rules. And hey, that is a great segue into our design discussion. But yeah, I, I guess <laughs> I did just jump away from Aftermath. A, a hesitant recommend from me. And I don't know, Peter, would you say you're still recommending the game or? I would recommend everybody tries it. But again, I recommend if you can find somebody who's played it, that you have somebody teach it to you or you watch a video. And if you haven't played it with somebody who's played it before, play it solo. Just take two mice. You don't have to play through an entire mission because the missions are actually fairly long because you go from page to page to page. So especially that first time, they can be kind of long. But I would say go through just a couple pages yourself just to get a feel for it. And then you shouldn't have a problem teaching at least the basics. I would definitely recommend doing that your first time playing through. It's interesting to think, Peter, how different your review might have been if there had been no quarantine and I would have taught the game to you. Oh, it would have been very different. Absolutely. And and so I'm really glad that that didn't happen because I think your perspective is so important for this one. You need to have someone who just read the rule book and tried to tough through it, (laughs) you know? Yeah, no, I mean, if this is the kind of game, if you were running it, I probably would have really, really enjoyed it. And that's the kind of thing. If you have one person in your group that can do that, I highly recommend this game because as Mike said, it's got brilliant mechanics. It really does. Like there's some really innovative, cool stuff here. That card play is really sharp for something so simple. So, I mean, I really like a lot about this game. That's why I I think that's why we're talking about it so much because I'm so frustrated that I can't get past this. You know, in my own mind, I'm frustrated at myself that I can't get past this to play and enjoy something that I know I was enjoying when I was getting it right. Yeah, so... There's a longer review than normal. I, th- I agree with Peter. It's it's kind of like uh, the crew that we reviewed pretty recently. Like I had very conflicted thoughts about it, <laughs> even though it's like a full recommend for me. But anyway, uh, so narrative and rules. Uh, Peter, you're the one who picked this topic. So you want to kind of give us like a lead off? Sure. So there's several ways it goes. And the way I was originally thinking about it is the way it is here. So typically when I think of narrative text on cards and rules text on cards, they're usually separated because the narrative text will be italicized and then the rules text won't be. It'll either be bolded or it'll be in a separate section on the card. So a lot of cards will do this. And even in when you think about rules themselves, sometimes they do this, like either the rule books themselves, or I was thinking Netrunner specifically, where they call things like instead of the cards in your hand, they call it the clutch or whatever. So they use different words to integrate this theme or story into the gameplay. It's like, oh, I take a card from your clutch. Wait, wh- where's my clutch again? Is that my deck or is that my hand or what is it? So th- that's really where I was coming from. It was a little bit of frustration from, wait a minute, am I reading fluff text here or am I reading rules text? I guess that's a good place to start, but then we could talk about like Vladish Vadel's rules where the whole rule book is written narrative flavor text. Yeah, I was sort of thinking a little bit differently, like kind of the idea of like Chrome and rules that are meant to bring out theme. But but I'll, I'll talk about what you're talking about. I do think some games have an easier time with this, and that this goes into kind of the design idea, in that you can have a ton of narrative text. But that doesn't mean that you have to have unique effects all the time. So to explain what I mean, uh, Arkham Horror 2nd Edition or Eldritch Horror, like anything in that kind of series, you know, they're known for these encounter cards that have very evocative and sometimes disturbing like horror text, like tentacled creatures doing horrific things. And it's fun to read those out loud and everyone kind of experience the narrative. 
But when you get down to brass tacks, it's like, make a roll against this stat, you fail, take one horror. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. And, and in a way, that can be negative, because... You know, if, if you've played the game a whole lot, or if you're just kind of in a hurry, your group isn't into the narrative thing, then you might just skip all the flavor text and it's like, oh, I take one higher. You know, and you kind of lose all the theme. Whereas if you look at something like like uh, this one, you know, like Aftermath, where you have kind of this uh, narrative flavor text going into what could be a very unique event just for this page, and they have to explain the rules right there. Or I'm also thinking of uh, all the Saddlers Brothers games, where they try to bring to life, like, this nuanced, complicated environment, like in Street Masters, you know, where five different cards represent this uh, illegal fighting tournament you're all in, then you're, you're, you're getting kind of a pro and a con there, right? Because you're getting the bonus of it's not just flavor text for flavor text sake, and you can just ignore it. It's trying to integrate the mechanics with that theme. But first of all, the second you have one-time text and one-time rules then all you have is the card. You can't go to the rule book anymore, unless you're a game that has references for every card in the game. I can't go to the rule book and say, like, hey, how do I interpret card 15C? That card has to speak for itself. And <laughs> that goes back to your thing with Aftermath, Peter. It can be especially frustrating if the person writing that card forgets that that card has to speak for itself or thinks that that card speaks for itself better than it really does. And, like, kind of does too much flavor and not enough substance to the rules implications of the card. And then suddenly the player is lost as to what they're actually supposed to do with it. Well said. And on the other end of things, we had a situation recently where we were playing our game, Spare Parts, with Jason. Where we would say, well, you have to go to this POI, which is point of interest, and do something. He's like, well, what is that thing? And, you know, we realized that we hadn't put enough flavor on the cards. So I think sometimes you can leave stuff out and it's like, oh, well, in each mission, I'm just running to POIs and doing things. So we went back and literally added flavor to all of our cards. You know, it still says interact with this POI. So it has the rules text right there. But then in parentheses, we added in what the thing was that you were doing and added a little bit of story. But thing that's important there is you've got to separate it out, too, and make sure that it's clear what is rules and what is not. So either italicized or whatever else. So I think you can go too far the other way where it becomes too mechanical and then you lose flavor. And so I think it's a hard balance to strike. Yeah, and it's, it's really, I guess, a user experience-like question. Like, how is your user experience? Peter just said, like, are you making some things bold and some things italics and really making it clear for the reader's mind which is which and like which one is the fun and which one is the game. I mean, you need to think about that kind of stuff, but I don't think very creative designers, that's necessarily the first thing their mind goes to. I know it doesn't for us. Sure, but I think one thing we do, even though it's, you know, still early stage prototype, we have names for all the abilities, right? And even that little bit of flavor, I think brings it out. When it's not in there, I think you lose something there, too. Even in early prototypes, I think it's important to at least know where your theme wants to go, and then you can figure out how easy it is to get to that theme. So, for example, if I write a lot of cards and I can't think of good thematic reasons why those cards are the way they are, maybe there's something wrong with the design. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Now, I, I did want to go to you, what you said about Vlada Chavadal. 
And I'm not talking Mage Knight, because I think Mage Knight is a very weird way of doing rule books. <laughs> and I won't even fully blame Vlada for that, because that was with uh, WizKids instead of him doing it with CGE. Check Games Edition is normal thing. But even though these games are way back when, I still am in love with the way he did the Space Alert rule book, the Galaxy Trucker rule book, the uh, Dungeon Lords rule book, the Dungeon Pets rule book. They were all kind of the same thing. Like, all his big thematic games before he uh, started doing code names all the time. <laughs> and and what he did is, like, somebody be talking to you. I mean, Space Alert is literally like a guy is lecturing you about how to be a pilot. But even in, like, Dungeon Pets, they would uh, break out the theme of every single action. So Or Dungeon Lords, I remember. I, I, I still remember. If uh, you go to the town, you uh, get some food. You buy, you know, you buy some food. Then if you go to the town again, they don't have as much. Then if you go to the town again, your evil meter goes up because you just, like, burn the town to the ground and you get, like, a different amount of stuff. And it was kind of weird because some of you might complain that, like, they're mixing the flavor text with the uh, rules too much. But with Vlada Chavadal's interesting style, the thing that stands out to me is that I learned the rules better and I memorized them in a much clearer way that has had lasting effect. Like, I can still very easily remember those rules because the theme was so alive for me and I understood everything. And I think some games achieve that in a nice way where it's like they have kind of chrome to the rules and things are very thematically based and they communicate that to the player. So it is still reliant on an effective rule book. They communicate that to the player so that it just sticks in your mind. You're like, I know why this is. And, and I, I use those explanations when I teach the game. I'm like, yeah, this is what you're doing. And it helps the players to learn the game as well. So there's a right way to do it, but Vlad is the only one I can think of that's done it exactly like that, and even it hasn't always been successful for him in some of his games. Well, I was about to say, yeah. I mean, that's a very specific thing because he's yeah. so good at writing rule books that way. And, I mean, not everybody agrees. Some people are like, these are the worst rule books I've ever read. I never want to read it again. <laughs> well, and they're terrible reference documents, right? Oh, absolutely. Like, you, you can't just, like... Lord, give me an index where I can just look up 2.31 and find out what 2.31 is and bam, I'm good to go. (laughs) Right. And it's so funny with those games. His games are so Euro. I mean, even when you look at something like Through the Ages, if you break it down to its mechanics, and that's one of my favorite games of all time. I mean, it's got to be my top five of all time. But if you look at just the gameplay itself, it's very Euro, but you don't feel that way. Like, I don't know. There's something about... The way he designs or the way he writes his rules, and I mean, Through the Ages is a terrible example of that, but look at Dungeon Pets and Dungeon Lords. I mean, if those had any other theme, and if you just were playing those mechanisms, they would seem so Euro and so generic to you. But because he wrote the rulebook the way he did, it's almost like he was in the rulebook explaining the game to you when you read it. And so because of that, I think you're right. It sticks better and the theme sticks better. You know, without that theme, yes, the artwork helps and everything else helps, but the mechanisms themselves are nothing amazing, nothing that you would call thematic at all. But the games still feel thematic because of that. I don't know. Your, your pet's pooping in their pen, not lowering your score. That, that definitely always felt thematic to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, uh, Peter, any final points? Because I know this uh, episode, the review went a little bit long, so we don't have as much time for the design discussion. Yeah, this is one we'll definitely have to come back to because I think you're right. We could talk about this in the rule book. We could talk about this on cards. We could talk about this as it pertains to getting people thematically involved in your game. So there are a lot of ways that you can go with this. But I think the bottom line is it's a very important balance to strike. If you don't do enough 
then you're going to lose people and they're actually going to have a harder time following your rules and following your story where if you don't add enough theme to it. But if you go the opposite way, and I think that's where Aftermath was, where it's too much theme and not enough rules in there, then you're going to lose people also. So I think on either extreme, you're going to lose the story because people are either going to be searching for rules or they're just going to think it is rules and not see the thematic connection. So I think there is a happy middle ground. I think you can't lean too heavy one way or another, or you're going to lose people, at least if you're trying to get a thematic experience across to them. I think you're going to lose people if you, you veer too far in either direction. Yeah, and my final point, <laughs> it's not quite the same, but it all relates to the same idea. Blind playtest your games. Blind playtest them a lot. Resist providing any help. Just let gamers muddle through and write down all the things they mess up and make it clear and give examples. When you actually release the game, you can do videos and things to explain exactly how to play. But let people who do not know your game at all mess up royally and find out how to help the next set of gamers not do that. I can't say for sure with Aftermath, but I get the sense they can't have blind play tested too much or they would have seen <laughs> how sure, the book was. absolutely. They did a lot of great stuff with the game. I don't want to harp on it too much. But uh, yeah, please, everyone out there, whether you're a designer or a publisher, blind play test your games as much as possible. And, and even with people that are more casual than you think your regular audience would be. Like if it's a dungeon crawler, blind play test it with at least a few groups that do not like dungeon crawlers that much. They might mess it up like terribly and you'll be like, well, anybody would get this. But it's still good data for you to kind of figure out as you make a better rule book. And this is tangentially related to that, but if somebody says, why is this this way, like when you're, they're trying to do an action, and you're like, oh, you can't, because the rules say. Well, if it's because the rules say, and not because of some thematic reason, and they wanted to do it because it would be cool thematically, like I would almost say consider, like unless it really overcomplicates things, consider changing the rule to make it more intuitive for players. Like if you keep hearing that same feedback, that it's not intuitive, then consider doesn't mean you have to change it, but consider that as well. But also feel free to ignore it. If somebody's like, hey, I'm playing Marvel Champions, why do I have to discard three cards for this guy? You don't have to tell them why. <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> that game never does, and you're fine. <laughs> like, people, I think, especially in card games, will forgive things more easily. It's because, hey, it's a card game. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. But it's like, if I can't, if I'm Hulk and I can't smash through a wall, well, why not? Well, yes, that, that's a good point. <laughs> All right, so thank you, everybody. Uh, keep staying safe and healthy, and I hope all of you are surviving through this very trying time. Uh, thanks for listening today. Go check out the YouTube channel. To, uh, join the Slack if you can. The link is always in the show notes. Go try out Aftermath if you get a chance. It's a great game once you get over the hurdles. Yep, have a great time, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week with another Top 5 list. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another Top 5 list. Test, test, test. All right. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Greetings from quarantine. Week. God, what week is it? <laughs> I don't even know what day it is. You expect me to know what week it is?
I mean, for real, though, how long? Is it four weeks? Five weeks? I guess that's about right, isn't it? It's been at least four or five weeks. Yes. Yeah. Gosh. So we're feeling it, too, people. We're feeling it, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, Although, I mean, to be fair, we've gotten a lot more design done, and we've gotten a lot more, like, other stuff done. Yeah, it helps when my job is kind of more like a four- to six-hour job than an eight-hour job. There's not that as much to do, no matter what I do. Well, and then there's the commute time, too. We forget how much time that adds to, like, your day. I mean, I'm talking to people that are, you know, missing three-hour commutes. My job is, like, 30 minutes talking to people all day with, like, seven hours of driving. (laughs) So, I mean, you take out the seven hours of driving, I got a 30-minute job. It's great. (laughs) You can throw this in somewhere. We should probably do a more traditional intro, right? Of course. Hey, Mike. Yes, Peter. If the rules for COVID were as unclear as the rules for myth, everyone would be partying and dancing together and not know it was wrong. Yeah, although <laughs> I feel like the rules aren't very clear. <laughs> I'm still waiting for some more clarity. I, I need I need an FAQ for COVID fast. Yes, well, I'll get right on that. At least it's thematic. <laughs> God.